with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is right before 2 Corinthians, so if you needed any help finding it. It's still in the New Testament, I believe. So go with me there. We're going to be talking about, as you can see, the, the title, the Good News. So good news. We've all received some kind of good news. Hopefully, hopefully you've received some kind of good news. Hopefully you can think of some specific times when you received uh, just this this great and awesome news. I remember uh, one particular time, like we had been waiting and expecting and and trying and and we were waiting for this great news. Uh, and I was and I was wanting to hear this this news and and there's this excitement, this stir. And finally, in 2004, the Red Sox won the World Series after 86 years. Uh, of trying and and I remember uh, just weeping tears of joy and and uh, hearing that good news. So if you thought I was going else elsewhere with that, um, we can talk about that later. There is other good news that has happened. That is not the best news that has happened, but uh, just wanted to share that as I know you all are just so excited about uh, that news uh, that that changed my life 15 years ago. So um, so hopefully you are excited about the good news. No, but but in a, on a serious note, we all ha- know what it's like to receive good news, right? Like this news that makes us leap for joy, jump for joy, cry tears of joy, whatever your personality is, right? A high five, fist bump, hug, uh, scream, run, whatever. We know what it's like to receive that type of good news. Right? We, we've all received that, whether that's uh, the the birth of a child or a wedding announcement or, or anything like that. Uh, we know in this life, what it's like to experience good news, to feel good news, to know good news, to hear good news. And yet, we have the greatest news right in front of us, in the form of a book, and we rarely see high-fiving and excitement and, and tears of joy, uh, weeping and hugs and whatever over God's word to us. The gospel, the good news. We rarely see that kind of excitement. I, I still remember reading in a book, uh, Matt Carter, who is the, the pastor of Austin Stone Community Church in Austin, Texas. He says his first question, it's a large church, so they have a lot of people on staff. His first question when he is interviewing someone for a staff position before he asks any other question is, when was the last time you wept over the gospel? And if that person cannot answer, he stops the interview immediately and, and says, I'm sorry, this isn't the position for you. And that has stuck with me. Like, Christian, ask yourself this rhetorical question. When was the last time you looked at God's word and just wept over the gospel, over the work that Christ has done for you, the redeeming, soul-saving work that Jesus has done for you? When was the last time you wept? over the gospel. And and we should really reevaluate because if we're only crying over Red Sox games and not over the truth that Jesus has saved our souls from hell forever, then our priorities are not right. We need to examine our hearts, examine ourselves, and ask, do we weep over this book, over this word, the, the work that Christ has done for us? Is it about him? So as we look at a specific text in First Corinthians just a little background on 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth to address questions dividing the church. 
including the issue of the resurrection of the dead. So Paul, uh, at this point, has just finished talking about proper worship. Right? We look at like 12, uh, chapters 12, 13, 14, proper worship within the church. And now he shifts over to, a, to another subject, which is, is the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. There was, there was this heresy going on in Corinth that there's no such thing as resurrection. We know that had been around before that. If you remember, the Sadducees, right, did did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, and and of course they, that continued on, and that sounds like um, that, and of course that sounds like today's day and age, right? As as most of of the world as we know it does not believe in in this particular resurrection of the dead. We may believe in some kind of per, uh, resurrection of the dead. Uh, most religions do, uh, but there are many religions that, that don't believe in any kind of resurrection from the dead. Uh, and specifically, not one man coming and dying on the cross and being in the grave three days and rising from the dead. But this is a, an essential issue to the gospel. And, and so Paul's going to address that in, in all of chapter 15. We're not going to have time to cover all of uh, chapter 15 this morning, but I would definitely encourage you to go home and, and read all of 1 Corinthians 15 and just see the argument that Paul gives through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the resurrection of Christ and for the resurrection of the dead. And before he starts off with, with our resurrection, he's going to start off with the ultimate resurrection. That's always important that we started off that way. We never talk about the way that we're going to rise from the dead one day and Jesus will bring us back to be with him without first talking about the fact that Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death. That Jesus was risen from the dead. So we also have to ask ourselves, what is the gospel? We often have a gross misunderstanding of what the gospel truly is. We hear this word thrown around a lot. Right, in, in, as particularly in churches, we hear, "Oh, yeah, we we preach the gospel and we teach the gospel," and then you will go on to hear things like, "If you serve God, your life will be easy, and and you will be healed of all your diseases, and you'll have uh, riches and comfort." And that, and that's not the gospel, right? Like we hear this word thrown around so much. We are a gospel-centered church, a Christ-centered church, and then the the message that is proclaimed. By, by either the pastor or the people of that church, goes on to be counter-gospel. It is important that we have a firm understanding of what the gospel is, because that's the message that saves, right? Christ, his work, and that's the gospel message that we proclaim, and belief in that, belief in the work that Jesus has done, is what saves us. And so it is essential that we understand the gospel. If we don't have a good understanding, a clear understanding of what the gospel is, Perhaps we do not even know Christ. And it's important that we look at not our own conception of what the gospel is, but scripture. And particularly, and it's, it's throughout scripture, of course. All of scripture is ultimately pointing us to the gospel. But particularly here in 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to look this morning. So let's read the first couple of verses. Now I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the first thing we see here is Paul talking to believers, right? Remember, he's writing this letter to a church. He's not talking to, to a group of non-believers here, though there may have been some uh, non-believers intermingled with that, as we find out later, of course, that people were denying the resurrection of the dead. 
But he's specifically talking here when he says, Now I remind you, brothers or believers. He's not trying to say only non-believers need to be reminded or told of the gospel. The gospel is for all of us. The gospel is for believers, and we need to constantly be reminded of it. Paul constantly reminded his readers of the truth of the gospel, and we have to constantly remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. That's why we at FBC Lovington here constantly try to say, preach to yourself the gospel daily. We're waking up and getting alone with God and looking at his word and spending time in prayer to ourselves, reminding us ourselves of who we are in Christ, our identity, because of what Jesus has done, no longer condemned, because of what Jesus has done in right relationship with God, because of what Jesus has done clothed in righteous robes. And all of that is, is focused on Christ, not on us. The gospel is not about what you and I have done, but about what Christ has done, is doing, and is going to do. So we gather to remind ourselves of what Christ has done and is doing and is going to do. That's what this gathering is about. This gathering cannot be about a way to earn our salvation. Because it will, it will leave you broken. This gathering cannot be about a check mark or some kind of social club because it will leave you wanting more. This gathering is a proclamation, as Ephesians 3 tells us, to, to the world and to Satan that Jesus has won the victory, that Jesus has conquered, that Jesus is it. And that's what this gathering has to be about. When you wake up on a Sunday morning or come on a Sunday night or on a Wednesday night or whenever else we gather, it should not be a thing where you say, well, I have to go do this to check off some religious mark. But it must be a thing where I want to gather with other like-minded believers who are focused on the truth of the gospel and who worship Christ for it. That's what this gathering must be about. If Paul reminded the Corinthian believers of the gospel, so should we. We must remind each other of the work of Christ day in and day out, week in and week out, because we need that to carry us forward. And then we see as he goes on, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Let's look at this word gospel. The Greek word is euangelion. So it's a long word, and it just simply means good news. Euangelion, good news. The good news, specifically in this context, the good news that the Messiah has come. Right? That's what, that's what the, the Jewish people had been waiting for. And now, of course, Paul talking here to Gentile believers, they, they saw that the Old Testament, all, all through God working and changing his people, now he has opened up the gospel to Gentile believers, right? And he will gather a people for himself from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Paul is proclaiming that. And this is the gospel, the good news that the Messiah has finally come. The one that, that we have been waiting for, the one that, that the, the, all the Jews throughout the Old Testament had been waiting for to come and save them, to rescue them, has now come. And not only has he saved the Jews, but he has saved for himself a people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And that's good news for us. And we can be sure and confident in the gospel that is, Revelation tells us that our names, if we are in Christ, have been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Because of the work that Christ did 2,000 years ago. Because of the work that Christ did as he 
took the God, the, the, the cup of God's wrath upon himself, soaked it up as our propitiation, paid for the penalty, and rose conquering Satan, sin, and death for you and I. And now he, he lives through his Holy Spirit inside of us, working in us, changing us, making us new, keeping us in sanctification. Uh, this word euangelion was often used as good news uh, in battle. And, and after a battle was won, a marathon runner would, would bring this euangelion, this good news, to the home city. Uh, whenever this battle was won, they would, they would have a parchment or some kind of uh, piece of paper or a scroll, and they would run back uh, to, to the, the home city, to the king, and they would deliver the euangelion, the good news, that victory has been achieved, that victory has been won. And that's the message that has been proclaimed to us through God's word, through, through people who have, who have told us about the gospel, through people who have discipled us. And that's the message that we carry on. And it's not, again, that, that message was not about the marathon runner. Right? The marathon runner isn't saying, look at this great work that I have done. That marathon runner is delivering the message of the victory. The gospel is not about us or the work that we have done. The, the gospel is about the work that our hero, that our conqueror has done, Jesus. And we deliver that, saying, look what Christ has done. The gospel is good news. So when you hear that, you, the word gospel literally means good news. So, so when we hear the gospel is good news, it's, it's defining itself. The gospel is good news. It's not just a catchy phrase. It is defining itself. Like a battle that has been won, we proclaim the victory that we have in Christ. We proclaim the victory, the fact that Jesus has conquered, the fact that Jesus has overcome. We also see that the gospel is for our past, present, and future. Continue with me. So now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Too often... We think that we somehow move on from the gospel. We somehow, like, the gospel was for this one time that you walked the aisle, that you prayed this prayer, and then, and then it's done from there. We move on to bigger and better things. And Paul is reminding these believers that the gospel is what has saved them, what the message that has saved them, the message that is saving them, and the message that will carry them through to the end. Look what it says. It says, which you received, that's the past, in which you stand, so now you stand in the gospel, and by which you are being saved. The gospel is the message which is saving you. That's why it's so essential that you remind yourself daily the, the work that Christ has done. That it's not about you, that Christ has saved you, and because it's about Christ, it is as sure as it's already done. Look with me in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. None of us, we can say this confidently because none of us are in heaven, none of us in this room have been ultimately glorified. But Paul can use the past tense when he says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? Past tense, as if it's already happened because our salvation in Christ is that secure. We are secure in Christ to where if we are in him, we can say that we have already been glorified in Christ like Paul says here in Romans 8.30. 
Because his salvation is secure. Because, because the, the work that he does is secure. And so we never move on from the gospel. We daily remind ourselves of who we are, our identity being found in Jesus and Jesus alone, knowing that Jesus is the one who does the work. You're not the one who does the work. Christ is. And then he goes on, If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And this believed in vain is really a false trust in Christ. You see that, right? If you believed in vain and don't hold fast to the word, you were never saved to begin with. There was never a true faith, saving faith, saving trust in Jesus and his finished work. Those who are in Christ will persevere to the end. Those who are in Christ will, like Paul, and can, like Paul, say, we are, we are foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. Because our salvation is secure in Jesus and Jesus alone. And look at, look at the, the focus of Paul as he's saying this. And as he continues on in verse 3 and 4, he says, For I deliver to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The, the focus of the Gospel was never himself or, or the people. Right? This is the problem so often with so many of our testimonies. We hear people say, like, hey, share your testimony, or hey, share a testimony. And the focus is usually all about us. So you usually hear a thing of, well, I, I used to be this, and I used to do all these things, and I was in all these things, and I was so terrible. And then uh, I came, and I heard this message, and I said, you know what? I need to, to uh, go after Christ. And then, and then now look at me. Now I'm, I'm walking in Christ. And notice all the I and the I'ms in there. The focus too often of our testimony is about us, and that is never what it's called to be about. This is what Paul says. He is, he is about to define the gospel for us. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for the sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Your testimony, your proclamation of your story to the world should never be about you. It must always be about Jesus and the work that he has done. Because if we find our identity in ourselves, it's going to leave us broken and wanting more. But when we find our identity in Christ, it will leave us fulfilled and satisfied, and we can delight in something greater than ourselves, not the creation, but the creator. Right? A, a painting doesn't, doesn't revel in itself. The beauty of a painting is not about the painting, but about the artist. What Christ has done, Christ defines us. Why his work on the cross, and when we're in him, our identity must be found in him. So the stories we tell, the testimonies that we tell, must be focused on him. Never ourselves. Yes, we were sinners, but we have been found, we have been purchased by Christ, we have been redeemed, we have been made new, all because of the work Jesus has done. Because he died, because he was in the grave, because he rose, because he even now is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, with all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the story of the gospel. It's not about you and I. The good news isn't about you and I. It's about the hero of the Bible. That's why we can never make ourselves the hero. The 
story of David and Goliath. Take that one, for example. We always like to insert ourselves into David and say, yes, we need to go conquer our giants and we need to do this. And that's not what the story is about at all. As Christ was walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 and showed them through all the law and the prophets how the scriptures testified to himself. Jesus is the greater David. We were the scared Israelites on the sidelines who couldn't fight. And Jesus stepped in as David and conquered Goliath for us. Jesus was the one who conquered, who has won the victory for us on the cross and with his resurrection. We are not the hero. Jesus is. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Abraham. Jesus is the better Noah. Jesus is it. He is the point. He is the one that all the law and the prophets are pointing to. Showing us the Messiah. That's the good news. It must be focused on him. And look and look at this message. Let's go back to verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul, having received the gospel, right? He received the gospel message, believed in it. Obviously, it changes his entire life. We can see that throughout the New Testament, especially Acts. He saw it as first priority, the most important message in the world. Right? He, wasn't, he didn't see the most important message in the world as the Red Sox have won, or look who's president, or look what our nation has done, or look at all these great things that are going on, or look at this promotion I got, or look at this job I got, or look at this family, or look at this baby, or these babies that I have. Right? That is not the ultimate gospel message. That's the ultimate, not, not the ultimate good news. We must see as first priority, as the most important message in the world, the fact that Jesus has saved us. The fact that Jesus has won the victory. The fact that Jesus will allow us to persevere through the end so that we will see him and enjoy him forever in his kingdom. That is the gospel message. That is the most important message. That we should be able to say, like Paul, this is the message as of first importance. That's real easy to say. It's another thing to do. Usually the most important things going on in our lives are the things that we talk about and think about and have conversations about the most. And just ask yourself this question, rhetorical question. And this is me, right? When I'm pointing one finger at you and pointing three at me. How often do we talk about Christ's work and the work that he has done? How often do we think about it? How often do we focus on and meditate on it? How often do we have conversations with others about it compared to other things that are fleeting and 10,000 years from now will not matter? 10,000 years from now will not matter that the Red Sox broke the 86-year curse. What will matter is that Jesus has conquered. The Lamb who was slain is sitting on the throne and we will be singing to him and enjoying him forever as our ultimate reward, as our ultimate pleasure. He is it. So we see, again, I'm delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Most of the culture around this early church was hostile to the gospel. This wasn't just a, a message that they came and heard on Sunday morning, and then they, they said, oh yeah, I, I believe in that. This was a lifestyle that the entire world was hostile to. 
This is so often one of the problems with, and I know we're kind of on the outskirts, but, but Bible Belt America, and really a lot of America, is the gospel has never been, the, the, this country has never been real hostile to the gospel. And so we have never really had to truly suffer like the, like the disciples suffered and, and live out this lifestyle. And, and I'm not minimizing the other suffering that we have gone through. Many of us have gone through suffering and have had to suffer for the gospel. And that is good. Continue on because that produces perseverance and hope. But, but this was a complete lifestyle change for them. They were not just saying, oh yeah, I'm hoping in the gospel. Their entire lives, they could be killed every day for the sake of the gospel. And yet they believed it and trusted it, that Jesus was enough. They truly understood what it meant to trust the gospel message. For example, Paul's suffering. Paul had a a pretty easy life. He was in a high position. He was persecuting the church. He was doing great things. He was praised by the Pharisees and Sadducees. He was doing great things, uh, or they thought, uh, for the religious leaders uh, in, in Israel. And yet, he saw Jesus. He saw the beauty of the gospel. Christ completely changed him. And now he went from this high praise position to having to be lowered from a basket down a wall so that he could escape death. To being stoned to the point where they thought he was deaf and they threw him out of the city. To being twice shipwrecked. To being beaten and thrown in prison over and over and over again. And to eventually being beheaded for the sake of the gospel. He believed that message was this important. Too often in our modern world, the gospel message is something we just occasionally hear, not the message we trust in for our soul satisfaction. Too often, the gospel message is, is just this, uh, this thing that we just disregard and say, yeah, that's just for a church setting on a Sunday morning. And it's not directing the entire way we live our lives, like it was the early church, like the Bible calls us to even if that means suffering for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, even to the point of death. And then we also see here in verses 3 and 4 that Paul's proclamation focuses on Jesus, not us. Again, I just want to reemphasize that. The focus here, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The focus is on Jesus and his work and what he has done. We also see that the scriptures are pointing us to Jesus and his redemptive story. Look what he, notice that phrase he said twice. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Twice he says that. That the scriptures are pointing us to Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And that's throughout the Old Testament. But one, one uh, good example is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was the one doing that work. Those words written 700 years before he would come. It's pointing us, that the scriptures are pointing us to his death and resurrection. And so because of that, we should study the Bible with a Christ-centered lens. 
We, we, there's a sense in which we read the, the Bible left to right, Old Testament to New Testament, but there's another sense in which we, as New Covenant believers, read the Bible from right to left, looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, knowing that we have been made a people of God. We have been grafted in as part of the people of God. And so we can look at Scripture, we can look at the promise of the coming kingdom throughout the Old Testament and say, because we are in Christ, we get to be a part of that. That's the gospel message. The fact that Jesus has won, he has purchased the ability for, for us to do that through his death and resurrection on the cross. And, and all the commands in the, in the New Testament that call us to walk in righteousness, the only reason why we can do that is because Christ has purchased the ability for us to do that on the cross in his death and resurrection. And now his spirit is living inside of us if we're in Christ. That's the only way we can walk in righteousness. That's the only way we can walk in holiness as scripture calls us to. And so we study the Bible with a Christ-centered lens. The scriptures are essential to evidence about Jesus and his resurrection. All of the Old Testament is clearly pointing to him. I remember last year getting to fly to, uh, uh, in fact, the uh, one of the greatest places in the world, Fenway Park in Boston. I know I've talked about the Red Sox a lot. But uh, my wife and I, uh, because I uh, work for a church, we decided to go cheap. So we bought Southwest tickets. And on the flight back, we had to, we couldn't sit together. So so um, my wife sat in the back, and I sat between uh, two guys who, who uh, were millennials, so I thought they wouldn't talk to me, and they would just put earphones in, and I was, uh, I was a little excited about that. I really was tired, did not feel like talking, sat right in between these two guys. Um, I made the mistake of pulling out some books. I was still at Criswell College at that time, reading some theological books. I made the mistake of pulling that out, and, uh, and this is me being real selfish, by the way, and starting to read that when all of a sudden one of them asks me what I'm reading and goes on to tell me that he holds to Judaism. And then the guy on the other side says, hey, no way, I, I also hold to Judaism. And I was like, oh boy, here we go. Like, I was not feeling, I was being real selfish and, and not Christ-centered. I was being real Zach-centered. I did not feel like having a conversation. That conversation was forced upon me. That was definitely the Holy Spirit. But I just remember like them asking these questions, bombarding me with these questions, some that I were not, was not prepared for. Uh, but some that I was able to say, hey, let's, let's just look at the Old Testament. You guys believe the Old Testament's the, the Word of God, right? And so, yeah, we do. And so we were able to go through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Psalms and look at these texts that are clearly pointing us to Jesus. One guy checked out and he eventually fell asleep, um, like some of you may be in here right now. But uh, the other guy listened and we talked for the, the whole two and a half hour flight. And, and he just saw that, yeah, okay, maybe I want to look at those things more. He, he told me yeah, he had to go ask his rabbi some, some certain questions that, that he couldn't answer. But, uh, but he started to see, and, and, and my prayer as I got off that plane was, Lord, help him see the truth of the gospel. Because this is a matter of life and death. I will probably never see that guy on the plane again. But it is my hope and prayer that Jesus saves him, that he sees the truth of Scripture, that the Messiah has already come. They're not waiting. We are not waiting for a future Messiah to come. Jesus has already come. He has already done the work. He has already purchased, purchased us by his blood, by his death and resurrection. And I pray that that young man, and he's probably about my age, so I'm still saying young man, saw the truth of the gospel saw the beauty of Christ and that we will be worshiping Jesus together in eternity. That is my hope and prayer for him. All of Scripture is testifying to Christ. Scripture is that powerful, guys. 
I know he, he did not make a profession of Christ there, but he began to see by what so many people call dead words on a page, by what so many of us have these books just sitting around our table cl- collecting dust. He saw the beauty of Christ through that, began to see that. These words are powerful. They are living and active and breathing better than any words that we could say. His word working, the, the word of God working in that man's heart was, was greater than anything that I could have told him. God's word is greater than anything that we can proclaim. It's greater than, than even our own testimony. The work that Jesus has done. The gospel message. We so often hear preach the gospel and sometimes use words. Francis Assisi was, was famous for saying that. But that's, that's not true. That's not what the gospel tells us. Yes, we are called to live out and walk in love. But more importantly, we are called to proclaim Christ with our words. And actions should meet along with those. People don't know Christ without hearing Christ. Romans 10 is clear about that. Are we going to proclaim the word of Christ to those around us? We also see that Jesus died in our place. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus is our propitiation, soaking up God's wrath for us. He's the one who took all of God's wrath. He, he took the cup of God's wrath as he prayed in the garden, Lord, if it is possible, take this cup from me. This cup of God's wrath that was sitting before him, and he drank it down to the dregs all the way till it was empty, soaking it all up for us so that there is no more wrath for you and I. He died for our sins. Too often we come to the gospel thinking, oh yeah, when I come to know Christ, when I make a profession of faith, Jesus has has forgiven all my sins in the past. But if I continue sinning, I have to, oh man, I have to continue coming to Christ. I've heard that so often. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died, I don't think any of us were alive. Right? All your sins were future sins. Jesus has already forgiven the sins that you have committed and will commit on the cross if you are in Christ. It is all paid for. There is no more wrath for you. And we see here that Christ did not just die to give us an example of how to love, but to pay for our sins, right? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So we must beware of the theological liberalism that teaches otherwise. There's a group of people that has, has pulled away from, from this conservative gospel that we look at, this, this Bible that has been around 2,000 years, and they say things like, well, Jesus died out of an example for love, but, but God would not punish his son like that. That's not what a loving God does. We hear those things. So I've heard those things. I've had several conversations with pastors, even in this town, about those things. That's theological liberalism. That's pulling away from what Scripture is clear on, that Jesus is our propitiation. Romans, Hebrews, and 1 John are clear on those things. That Jesus soaked up God's wrath for us. That Jesus died to pay for our sins. Don't buy into the lie that Jesus just died out of an example of love. Because if he did, then his death was for nothing. Jesus was not just a martyr to show us an example. Jesus stood in our place to die instead of us because you and I should have been on that cross. And then Jesus was the only one who could conquer it as he rose from the dead. Don't buy into that lie that Jesus just died out of love. He died because he loved you. He died in your place to take your sins away, to offer you forgiveness. 
And then we see as we go on that the resurrection is essential, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. Paul continues to tell us that as we go on through the rest of of chapter 15. That's why I encourage you to read it. If there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are to be pitied among all people. Jesus conquered death. It is essential that we believe that. We cannot have a gospel. We cannot say, Jesus died for me, but I don't believe he rose from the dead like this, so many of these people in the church in Corinth were doing, we have to say, because Jesus died for me and conquered death, that I can be free in him. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we can shout with both Isaiah and Paul in, in chapter 15, verse 55, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Death has no victory or sting over us. Hell has no victory or sting over us if we're in Christ, because he has won the victory. And this is true because Jesus, because God did not abandon Jesus' soul to Sheol or let him see corruption, as Psalm 16 tells us. Jesus is not in the grave. Jesus is not still on the cross. Jesus is ruling and reigning from his throne in heaven. He is alive today, and that is essential to believing for the gospel. And then we continue on to verse 5. It says, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So then Paul goes on to tell this list of, of the different people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And there was, like, there was 500 plus people that Jesus appeared to afterwards. If the resurrection was made up, one of these 500 people would have spoken up. This is, this is often the, uh, the, uh, the claim, the dispute with the resurrection. People say, okay, there was this group of people that claimed to saw Jesus, but they could have just made up this lie. One, there was a group of 500 plus people that Jesus appeared to, and, and Paul names them. So everyone reading this letter in Corinth and around, and by the way, these letters didn't just stay in church, so this letter would have been specifically to the Corinthian church, but would have circulated as well. Everyone reading that would have seen those names, and they could say, you know what, that was a lie. And yet there is never any refutation from that time, other than people just saying, like the Pharisees, yeah, Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, that one of these men was lying. Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to these 500 people. There's also thought that the disciples made up the resurrection for personal gain, right? We see people often do this. They make up a lie so that they somehow can get some personal gain. So this is one of the refutations from modern-day scholars who say, yeah, yeah, these disciples were making this up so they could gain some kind of fame or gain something. What did the disciples gain for that? They gained being hung upside down on the cross. They, be, they gained being sawn in half. They gained being thrown to lion's dens. They gained being beheaded. They gained being boiled alive in oil. They gained being uh, uh, put on an island by themselves, isolated. They gained being thrown in prison. They did not gain anything earthly. The early church had no earthly gain to receive by making up about the, a lie about the resurrection. They died for this claim. And we have to believe it to that point. Do we just believe the death and resurrection of Jesus when it's comfortable and easy for us? Because in this setting it is. But it's another thing when we have to live it out to a world who is rejecting it. And even to the point of death. That is true trust and faith in the Christ who is our King, who is our Lord, who is our Savior, who is our Conqueror, who is the one who died and rose from the grave. The disciples had nothing earthly to gain. We should never use the death and resurrection of Jesus for our earthly gain. 
That's heresy. That's wrong. We gain nothing other than right relationship with Jesus. And that is our greatest joy, our greatest pleasure, our greatest treasure. That's the thing that we look forward to and we focus on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we'll finish with verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. We see here that Paul recognizes humbly his sin. Right? Paul said earlier, like, like, I'm least of all, right? and I'm untimely born, and he appeared last to me. He said, so he says, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul does not say, you know what, I'm not going to talk about my former sins anymore. Paul does still recognize his sin and what he was saved from. But notice he does not focus on it there. Too often the focus of our testimonies is all these things we've been done and all these things we've been rescued from. Paul briefly mentions this, saying that he was not worthy because he persecuted the church of God. So Paul humbly recognizes his sin, but then he shifts focus. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. His shift focus from, his focus shifts from himself. Right? He just said, yeah, I did these things. Now I'm shifting that focus from myself to God, not wallowing in pity. This is too often what we do in our sin. We either wallow in pity or we try to vindicate ourselves. Paul didn't do either. He said, yes, I'm a sinner. And then he immediately ran to the cross. He ran to Jesus. He says, he looks on and relishes in the grace of God. He says, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Three times he mentions the grace of God, getting what he doesn't deserve. Heaven, right relationship, forgiveness. That's grace. Paul over and over focuses on grace. I think it's, I don't think it's any small thing that every single one of Paul's letters, all 13 of his letters, begin with grace to you, and all 13 of them end with grace with you. That's interesting. That all of them, he says grace to you when he opens up this letter. And he ends with grace with you. In other words, it was grace that they begin with, and grace that they end with. Paul focuses on grace, and that's what he focuses on here. Like a man who sees the beauty and love of the one who saved his life and uses that life to serve that person, so Paul worked hard for the sake of the gospel, always relying on grace. Right? That's what he says. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So Jesus saved him by his grace. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul's saying, because of that grace, because I see the beauty of the one who saved me, I'm going to work for him, but never relying on his own work. But the grace of God, he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He ends it with the grace that was with him and the grace that is with him now. Right? Grace was what sustained Paul in the past and in the future. Grace, the gospel message, is what's going to, to keep you now and sustain you to the end. And then we have to ask one last question before we close. Where does the gospel that we believe save us to? What does it save us to? Right, we know what it saved us from, from the wrath of God, from Satan, from hell, from our flesh, from the law of sin and death. And what does it save us to? The answer is God. If we haven't been saved to anything, 
And if our testimonies are all just focused on, yeah, I was saved from this, I was saved from this, now I get to do this, and I'm this, there, there's no God in that. That's not, that's, that's, a, uh, that's all about you and what you have done. The truth is that Jesus has saved us to something, to God. 1 Peter 3.18a, I think, says this so clearly. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Not that he might bring us to a better understanding of ourselves, or that he might bring us to just comfort or ease, or that he brings us to uh, even just fellowship, koinonia, with each other, so that he might bring us to God. God is the point. God is the beginning and the end. God is, is the end himself. He's not a means to an end. Jesus is the end. Jesus is our treasure. He is our reward. He is the one who has saved us. It's not just a one-time walk down an aisle, but rather a complete life change. Our souls have been made alive with Christ, Ephesians 2 tells us. And now we have right relationship with God. John Piper says it like this. Do you know why you're forgiven? So that your guilt won't get in the way of enjoying God. Do you know, do you know why you're vindicated in the court of heaven? So that your condemnation won't get in the way of enjoying God. Do you know why you have new life and the promise of a new body someday? So that you have the capacities within to finally enjoy God the way he ought to be enjoyed. The gospel is to get us to God so that we would have right relationship with him so that we would see the one that our soul has been longing for and we'd be satisfied in him. And we would want him because he's the one we will be enjoying forever. Not ourselves. Not any person, not anything, not a sports team, or an amount of money or a career. Jesus is the one that our soul is longing for. And this is the message, the gospel, that we must trust and we must proclaim. They proclaimed it. Paul proclaimed, as he says in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. We preach the gospel. We remind ourselves of that. Remind each other. Church, First Baptist Lovington, remind each other we have been saved. We are new creatures in Christ. We believed in that. And we must preach to ourselves that that will carry us through to the end. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you are awesome and great and amazing. God, I'm worthy to be praised. And I pray that our focus, our eyes would be on you and you alone. God, thank you for the gospel message. Thank you for the fact that you have saved us and redeemed us and made us new. God, and that all the work is done by you. It's not us. The gospel is about you. Let us never make it about ourselves. But make, us about, make it about the hero, the conqueror, the redeemer of our souls. Jesus, the hero of scripture. The scriptures are testifying to you. History is testifying to you. Creation is testifying your glory. Help us to focus on you. In Jesus' name, amen.